Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Joanne Kwai. I'm hosting this podcast as part of my virtual residency under the Supra Scholarship Program at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. I'm a PhD candidate at Kaushita University, Sweden, with a research project on artificial intelligence in Chinese newsrooms. Joining me today is Dr. Bingchun Meng, Associate Professor in the Department for Media and Communications at LSE, where she also directs the LSE Fudan Global Public Policy Research Center. Professor Mon has published widely on topics such as gender and the media, political economy of media industries, communication governance, and comparative media studies. Professor Mon, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So, Professor Mon, I know that your latest research is on this mediated COVID-19 experience, where you interviewed overseas Chinese students, both in the UK and in the US. Can you tell us a little bit about this project and share with us some major findings? Yeah, sure. So this project was really, uh, really came from the personal stories my students shared with me. And I just realized that the overseas Chinese students are in a way put in the most difficult position during this pandemic for so many different reasons. One thing is that they experience, of course, overt racism and racist attack. There was also a stage during this pandemic that they became the threat for those in China. On top of that, at a deeper intellectual level, I think especially because my students, they are more familiar with all these social science terms in, in unpacking ideology, in unpacking you know, media representation and such. So for many of them at the intellectual level, it's very disorienting. Many of them, when they initially came to the UK or the US, they were seeking some kind of, you know, essentially a kind of enlightenment that they were seeking a better way and also the more liberal worldview, but a better way for them to make sense of world politics and also make sense and develop a different understanding about the country that they grew up in. When they came to the UK and the US, and then very quickly, they encounter huge sort of, I think, especially in the last few years, racism mixed together with anti-China attitude or this kind of China bashing, China threat and all this uh, discourse. And they feel, first of all, they feel personally attacked. And secondly, this also contradicts with their previous imagination about what a liberal learning environment should be like. That many of the things they encounter don't seem to fit their imagination about liberalism. And I think the pandemic then really hit home. China, you know, if you compare the response to the the, uh, pandemic in different parts of the world, and then if you compare the the media portrayal of all these different responses and and how the responses is being narrated by the media. So there are all these kind of disjunctures are, you know, many of them are still stuck 
in the US or UK, or some of them have made it back home, but doing these online courses with all these strange you know, time zone disruption and, and, and everything. And in the middle of all these practical challenges, they are also trying to make sense of, first of all, how they should now relate to their host country and also the political system in their host country. And secondly, how they should plan for their future. That's something that we are trying to tease out in this project. And what we see based on the preliminary analysis of our interviews, we did 44 altogether in-depth interviews with um, Chinese overseas students. And we see a lot of very sophisticated reflection on how this pandemic has reconfigured their you know, ideological position and political views, and also how manifesting at the personal level in terms of how they see their themselves uh, in terms of identity and also in terms of their plans for the future. And I think, you know, many of them are questioning this notion of cosmopolitan elites or global citizens who claim no allegiance to, to or loyalty to any nationality. So your latest book is titled The Politics of Chinese Media, Consensus on Contestation. We all know that globally, technological advancement and market disruption has impacted media industry profoundly. But what is so special about Chinese media, especially which part of it distinguishes it from the Western media industry? Okay, can I, uh, before I answer that question directly, can I actually turn it around by saying that we could probably start by talking about the commonalities instead of the uniqueness. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think oftentimes a misconception is sort of like a, what I consider often a myth in the media uh, when it comes to thinking or analyzing media in China. It's actually this kind of Chinese exceptionalism. And often this kind of exceptionalism is mixed with an element of Orientalism um, or even racism. When you always think of China as a, some kind of outlier, you are basically taking what's happening in the West as the norm. And you're also taking that as a criteria or as some kind of yardstick to measure how China is different from that. And, and of course, it's not just different, but also to what extent it's lagging behind. So that's why I want to turn it around by saying they are actually, if you look at how technological advancement has disrupted media and communication. There are a lot of commonalities. For example, if we look at how digital technology has completely reconfigured news production, news distribution, and news consumption, there are a lot of commonalities there, both at the institutional level, how digital media platforms or social media platforms are taking a large chunk of advertising revenue that previously went to what we call the, the institutional media or legacy media to the extent that this legacy media is now facing huge financial difficulty in surviving. There is also this tendency, partly as a result of techno technological development of the reconcentration of media ownership that we see, you know, 
local media outlets or media outlets that used to have this obligation to report more local news are closing down because financially it makes more sense or it's more it's considered more efficient to have one large media conglomerate and owning many media outlets because that's a more efficient way of, of producing media content and, and informational content. Although I still now I'm going back to the, the real question because I think that is still a very valid question. And I think by, by emphasizing commonality, we shouldn't disregard differences either. Um, I think mm-hmm. there are, of course, also lots of differences. And I think one issue is that certainly the state is much more present and plays a much more dominant role in the communication landscape in China. To a certain extent, when you have very strong control of information or communication environment from the state, and then when you also have a very aggressively commercialized and marketized communication system, it's almost like having the worst case scenario, the worst combination, because the state would want to shape and configure the communication environment in a very non-pluralist way to fit their political agenda. And I don't think a so-called unregulated commercial media market would necessarily lead to better plurality either, because the you know commercialized media would always follow the financial logic, follow the commercial logic, and they would want to produce particular kinds of content. For example, content that propagates consumerist ideology, content that cater to the kind of audience that can attract the right kind of um, advertising revenue, the right kind of you know target audience who have the purchasing power that advertisers would want to attract. So you have this you know, control on the, the political side. And then you also have this commercial force shaping the, the, the communication environment in a particular way. And that could produce a particularly, how should I characterize? It's a particular kind of ideology that is with the component of authoritarian control, but it also has the component of consumerism and also a, a particular kind of class politics because of the, the highly commercialized nature of media. On the other hand, we also need to develop a more nuanced understanding of the role of Chinese state. That is oftentimes when we talk about Chinese media, the state's role is imagined or conceived as you know, controlling repressive. That is certainly part of the story. But we also see is that the state can also be enabling in building communication infrastructure. Part of China's very successful response to the the COVID pandemic, there is this component there in the sense that the reason why China was able to implement contact tracing so effectively was because there was this information infrastructure in place that everyone, you know, there is this very high level of diffusion in terms of smartphone and also there is this very in a way stable 
connection of mobile networks so that you can you know, have this kind of contact tracing network being um, in, in place. And of course, you know, a lot of people in the West will say, oh, that's because the government disregards privacy. And I, you know, I, I don't agree with that. I think in a crisis like this, you need to think about communication or think about information also as public asset or public utility. So in that regard, the state plays an enabling role in building the infrastructure and enabling the public aspect of information sharing and information circulation. And secondly, I think I mentioned ownership concentration earlier and that I think the state can also play a, a strong state that is can also be very proactive in regulating or in shaking up a very concentrated media ownership structure. A recent case in point was the last year, you know, there was just before I like on the 11th hour of the um, unfinanced IPO, which was poised to be the largest IPO on, on history just two days before that. Um, the whole thing was cut off. And then Jack Ma also suddenly disappeared from um, public view. And now more recently, we heard this fine from, from the states, I think 182 billion RMB or something. So also, it seems that Unfinance and also Alibaba was being told a severe lesson in terms of how they should operate or how they shouldn't try to circumvent the regulation from the state. And I think this kind of extraordinary regulatory effort that is, you know, calling off an IPO at 11th hour, this is something that's only po probably only possible in China. Thinking about the extraordinary power that digital platforms like Twitter and Facebook now have, and think about power negotiations, where these companies stand and where state regulators stand in different political contexts. So I think that is also another realm that we could probably expect that the Chinese state plays a more proactive and positive role. So to add an extra layer of complexity, we've also observed that these Chinese tech giants are trying to expand their business overseas. So for example, uh, Biden's has exhibited this global ambition quite an early stage with TikTok. So we're seeing that this shifting power dynamic is also transcending borders. What would you say will be the implications of this? That's, um, um, that's a great question. That's, that's actually very nicely um, linked back to my answer to your early question about the Chinese aspect of technological advancement and market disruption. Let's break this down into two parts. One is that I would say the suspicion and the hostility that Chinese tech companies encounter when they try to expand their business overseas has a lot to do with the kind of imaginary I critiqued earlier of this Chinese exceptionalism. It's almost a stigma associated with any Chinese companies, not just TikTok, right? Especially I would say Huawei, as if, you know, if you are a Chinese company, um, there is instant suspicion that, okay, ultimately it's the government having control. Or if you are a technology company, there must be some kind of backdoor 
that you need to allow the government in at some point to go through your data and, and look for, or, you know, whenever government demand anything, you are going to just surrender without putting up a fight. That really puts these companies at a disadvantage, the, the kind of immediate hostility and suspicion because this is a Chinese company. That's one aspect. But I think another interesting aspect maybe also to go back to your question about the uniqueness of these Chinese companies is also, I think, these recent efforts also show that how the myth about Chinese companies being copycats, Chinese companies, you know, especially on the technological front, being only imitate or emulate or always, always trying to catch up. I think, you know, this is also time to seriously maybe subvert this kind of myth. Because what we see with either Huawei or, or TikTok is that these companies actually have advanced or now they are on the cutting edge of the technological development in their respective field. Right? Why is it that short video sharing platform built by TikTok seem to take off so fast and become so popular among the young people in the West? You know, other company was doing the same business, but they had better algorithm. They had better technological um, sort of know-how in terms of building these kind of platforms. I, so I think that also shows how this common myth about Chinese companies being the, the, the copycats is, is, is very much um, you know, wrong. Yeah, I actually do have a question about who's to blame for this kind of imaginary or the myth and what kind of effort can be made to demystify this? Is it like Chinese government have been doing a bad job in publicity or what are the active, uh, other factors that contributed to this kind of imaginary? Oh, that's... Um... I think let's say what, what who should blame? Um, <laughs> I think you know the short answer is probably history and ideology. But then, of course, we can further unpack by saying, how does history come into formation, or you know how is the kind of the, the historical legacy being being passed on and also how ideology came into formation. Underpinning both of these, you know, the the narratives about history and also um, all these different elements of, of ideology. Um, underpinning both of these um, is of course the power structure. So that is the power structure underpinning knowledge production at the global level, the power structure underpinning also information production, your knowledge production, maybe we can refer you know, think about university and academia um, and, and, um, and also the production and circulation of information that's done by media institutions, right? We can think about who are the ones producing the narratives about China and, and also occupying in a way to, to use a Chinese term, occupying the, the commanding height of narratives about China, right? Who, who has a voice and whose voice count and whose voice can be, can be heard or deemed as credible. Really in the global 
sort of ideological realm. China is only now trying to sort of making all the efforts trying to counter the hegemonic narratives. But there is still, the efforts are not very successful because you know the, the stories that you tell through media can never be disembedded or separated from the power relation in global geopolitics. Mm. And if we are to be more solution-oriented, <clears throat> is there anything we can do as uh, scholars studying Chinese media or any kind of effort we can make? I think partly my book was out of partly the motivation for me to, to, to write the book, actually, because I don't know how you feel as a reader of the book, but when I wrote it, almost, you know, for every chapter, I felt that I was arguing with an imaginative opponent. And this imaginative opponent uh, came from the mainstream research in the West about media communication in China. So almost every chapter started with an effort trying to demystify some of the common perceptions. And then I go from there explaining why those are those myths are problematic or why some of the, the analysis um, needs to be better historically informed. So I think, you know, you asked earlier, who is, what is it to blame, right, of, of the, the, the current situation? And I, I mentioned history. And, and I also think maybe particularly for our field, we tend to be too much forward looking. We tend to be too obsessed with the so-called so digital future. We are so busy looking forward that we forgot how oftentimes we need to look back. And actually, only by looking back, we can be better informed. So that's part of the core argument that I was trying to develop throughout my book. That's a great take-home message for me. So uh, thank you, Professor Meng, for joining us today. Professor Meng's book, The Politics of Chinese Media, Consensus and Contestation, was published by Palgrave in early 2018. She's currently working on a book project about technology industries in China. We look forward to reading that. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Joanne Kui, that's J-O-A-N-N-E-K-U-A-I, Thank you for listening to the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.